Well, if I dared you to partake in the National Chinese Kickboxing World Championship after only four weeks of training, what would you do? I would just, I would probably just not take that bet. But uh, author Tim Ferriss, uh, the entrepreneur at age 22, was dared to do just this, and he accepted the challenge. So he flew to China. He ended up winning the gold medal. So after four weeks of training, he, he went and won the world championship in Chinese kickboxing. How did he do that? Well, uh, you might think, did he have prodigious strengths? Did he have uh, above average uh, aptitude in the martial arts? And the answer is no. Uh, he just knew how to read the fine print of the rules of the competition. And he found two loopholes, two technicalities in, in the rules which he exploited to his advantage. In his own words, he explains it. Using dehydration techniques, common, uh, well, let me first explain that w one of the rules is that um, for, for this competition, they weigh you the day before the competition, and then they assign you to a weight class, and then you fight people in your own weight class. Uh, in the States, with this type of thing, they weigh you the day of. But in, in China, they do it the day before. It makes more sense because then the next day, everybody can, uh, you know, gives the, the organizers a whole day to organize. But this is what he did. Using dehydration techniques commonly practiced by elite powerlifters and Olympic wrestlers, I lost 28 pounds in 18 hours. Weighed in at 165 pounds and then hyperhydrated back to 193 pounds. It's hard to fight someone from three weight classes above you, poor little guys. Then the other technicality that he exploited was that if during a, a fighting bout in, the, in, the, in one round, if the person fell off the race platform three times, he automatically forfeited. Well, now he's He's three weight classes heavier than the people that he's fighting, and so what he did is he just pushed them off the side three times and won every round that way. So he didn't have to kick, punch, block, wrestle, or anything. He just used his weight to shove people off the platform, and uh, he said this, I decided to use this as my principal technique and push people off. As you might imagine, this did not make the judges the happiest Chinese I've ever seen. <laughs> well, the, the sneaky, shrewd... Tim Ferriss is the national champion um, of China that year, but was he really the best kickboxer? And the answer is no. He used his uh, shrewd tactics to, to um, accomplish something, but he didn't really have the game to do that. I mean, if he met one of these fighters in a dark alley, uh, he'd be in trouble. Well, in the spiritual realm, uh, Satan has power and shows his power off, but he is very shrewd in the way that he does it. His demons are sneaky, and they are shrewd in their opposition to God's kingdom, and so people fear them because of that power. They manipulate humans. They operate in ways that may appear very powerful and intimidating, but when Jesus comes on the scene, he's the one with the true power, and they are absolutely no match to him. And so uh, we saw this last week. We saw um, Jesus casting a demon out of a man, but he left him... Uh, at, in a, uh, a particular state, and here Jesus will make the point that you're not safe from these demons unless you have the Holy Spirit as your personal bodyguard. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Luke 11. If you remember, the man that we met last week was possessed by a demon. He was mute. Part of what demons can do is they can control your body, and the way this demon decided to manifest was to, to control his 
vocal cords and paralyzed them so this man couldn't speak. And of course, he was unsaved. That's why he had a demon in him. That's how he had a demon in, in him. And so when Jesus encounters this man, he casts the demon out with his power. The man's able to speak again. The people are marveling. But then remember, some of the Jewish leaders were like, how's this possible? Um, we've already decided that he can't be somebody from God. And because of that presupposition, we're now faced with a miracle that only God can do. And so what they think is, well, you know, who else could do this? Satan could do it. So he's casting out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus just kind of reasoned with them saying, that's a little, that's a little silly. Um, why would Satan cast out Satan? A uh, house divided is going to fall. Uh, this doesn't make any sense. And also you're being inconsistent because you think and say that your Jewish exorcists are able to cast out demons. And so... Are they using Satan's power? You're just being inconsistent. So that's where we left it last week because we, Jesus is now going to teach more about the state. Even if without a demon in you, that doesn't mean your problems are over. So we'll pick it up in verse 18. Uh, Luke eleven eighteen. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Remember, that's the word uh, Lord of the Flies, a nickname they had for, for Satan. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast the demons out, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And remember, we looked at um, Exodus to show that that's what the magicians who are faking the power um, that Moses had told Pharaoh that we can't fake this miracle. This one is from the finger of God. And so Jesus uses that exact same phrase to show how they use their fake magic in the same way um, the demons are. Okay, verse 21. Then Jesus says this, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods, his property, are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I'll return to my house from where I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Interesting passage, right? We're going to look at three unavoidable realities that you must face to stay safe from Satan. Firstly, resistance is futile. You need to know that. Uh, neutrality is impossible, and moralism is dangerous. That's what we're going to look at tonight. So firstly, resistance is futile. This is something you need to understand when we're talking about the spiritual realm, um, demons, that resistance is futile if you're not a believer. Um, so in verse 21, he says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. When one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoil. Now, in the, in the 80s, when I was growing up as a kid, I got into ninja movies. I don't know if ninja movies were big here, but they were big in South Africa in the 80s, and I managed to watch ninja movies until my mom watched one with me, 
and saw how violent they were, and then I was never allowed to watch them again. But one thing I learned in watching ninja movies, it's a very strange genre. If you don't know what a ninja is, it's a, a Japanese martial artist. They always wear black, you know, they always wear masks. They've got ninja stars and swords, and they're ruthless, and they're perfectly silent, and they're completely invincible in, in that genre. The only thing that can beat a ninja is another ninja, right? That's the only thing that can beat a ninja. So you, you have to have that concept. When you're, when you're up against demons in the spiritual realm, your humanity is of no good. You, you're, you're no match for a demon. A demon is always going to school you. It is going to, the, the person that it, it's in can have supernatural power. Um, you see demons breaking shackles. You know, the demons in a person make the person able to break a shackle, make the person able to beat up multiple people, um, all sorts of different things. They have superhuman strength at times, and so they're dangerous. And the point here is that in the spiritual realm, there is no human being that is any match for a demon without God's help. This Jesus is warning the people here who are refusing to be saved. These are the people that are seeing the power of God, attributing it to Satan, refusing to believe in Jesus. And he's kind of warning them, look, if you don't have me on your side, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not safe from demons. You think this guy had it bad? You're all vulnerable to demons. And so he says in, in verse 21, when a strong man, you could say, you know, a ninja, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. So then what do you do about that? Well, verse 22, when a, one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusts and divides his spoils. So there's a couple of things going on here. The, the demons are stronger than you. I'm stronger than the demons. I just showed that. And so the kingdom of God has come upon you, he says. Remember, if this is the power of God, then this evidence is that the kingdom of God is here. Well, one of the things that I need to do as the one ushering in the kingdom of God is I need to subdue the strong man. I need to subdue the ninja. So right now, Satan has the run of the place. This is kind of his world. And now I'm bringing God's kingdom into his kingdom, and I'm taking over his kingdom, and we know from previous messages that we did on thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that part of that is the spiritual spread of the gospel and more and more people becoming Christians and the Holy Spirit dwelling here on earth in that way. And so Jesus says, one of the things I need to first do is bind the strong man. I need to get him to tap out. I need to cast out his demons. And so one of the things Jesus did as he was going from town to town to town, yes, he was healing people from physical disease, but he was also casting out demons that he was finding in these unbelievers. And so this is a simple picture. If you want to rob a strong person, um, you can't walk into their house. You know, here's a ninja fully armed, and you don't walk into his house and take his TV and walk out. He's going to kill you on the way out, right? You have to first subdue him. And so that's what Jesus is busy doing here. And he, so he's explaining to him, this is why I'm casting out demons. And you say that Satan's casting them out? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Uh, for those of us who live here in Mobile, we know the battleship that was in under siege. Well, you, you, can't, you can't relieve the battleship from being under siege while Steven Seagal is still running around, right? While Steven Seagal is free, everybody's going to be beaten up. You first have to take care of him. So you drop what you're doing, you go after him. If you've never seen a Steven Seagal movie, you're better for it. Um, so in this analogy, 
Satan is the strong man. Human souls are his goods, and Jesus is subduing him. Let me just give you a couple of verses to make that point, Um, because sometimes when I say Satan is the god of this world, people might feel sort of fingernails on a chalkboard, like, are you allowed to say that? Um, I'm just taking a phrase used in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul says, in their case, in the case of unbelievers who refuse to believe in Jesus, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so if you, you look in your Bible, you'll see there, the God of this world is written with a little g. He means the, the false God, the idol. You know, the, and, and he's talking about Satan. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. So if, if you are an unbeliever, you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, your mind is blinded by Satan. And so that's a dangerous position to be in because you can't see past your blindfold to do anything about your spiritual state. You need God to initiate. You need God to illumine your mind. The Holy Spirit regenerates your heart. He allows you to comprehend the truths of Scripture. If you're reading theology and you come across the term total depravity, that's the concept it's talking about. This is to- total depravity means every part of you is affected by sin in some way, including your thinking. And so you can't reason yourself to salvation until God fixes that for you. That's why he gets the glory for your salvation. And you don't say, well, it's because I'm smarter than the, d- the dumb people who don't believe. The people who looked at the evidence and didn't come to the right conclusion. If you looked at the evidence and came to the right conclusion, God still gets the glory because he helped you understand it. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Those are unbelievers. The prince of the power of the air. That's what, what Satan is called, the ruler of the air. So when you're unsaved, you can't understand the gospel. Satan, Satan's hold on you first needs to be broken because you are his property. You are his goods, and, and his goods are safe until Jesus comes and subdues him and frees you from that, right? That's the, that's the imagery that's being used here. So resistance is futile. And the whole point here is that you need to place your faith in Jesus as the champion. You're not expected to stand up against Satan. You need a bodyguard to do it for you. Jesus is the strong one who does that for you. So that's our first point. Resistance is futile. Let's look at the next one. Neutrality is impossible. He goes on and says in verse 23, Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. In other words, If you're not actively working with Jesus to bring about the kingdom influence on earth through the spread of the gospel and the obedience to the king in your own life, if you're not actively doing that, you are by default his enemy. You are by default part of the problem. You're not gathering, you're scattering. That's an image of uh, harvest. You know, you've got the workers that are gathering the fruit from the harvest 
If you're not one of them, you're just in the way. You're just making their job harder. You're actually scattering. And so neutrality in this war is completely impossible. Now, you might not even realize it, but probably in your mind, you have categories of people. You've got the bad people. Bad people are, you know, burglars, gangsters, drug dealers, rapists, murderers, you know, bad people. And then you've got good people, Christians, people who spend their Wednesday night in church. Good job. Um, and then you've, you probably have a category for people that are like between those two, right? You've got the good people, people who are saved, who love Jesus. You've got the bad people who go around hurting and killing people. But then there's this large category of people that you know, they're not Christians, but they're not bad people. You know, maybe you've got a pediatrician who's just, he loves children and he's so kind. He's such a great doctor. He's not a believer, but he's such a good person. You've got this colleague at, at work and they're so sweet and they're so generous and they're so loving and they're such a good friend and so loyal. Look, they don't believe in Jesus, but I mean, they're not a burglar, gangster, drug dealer. They're just a nice person. And so you have these, these categories, the, the Dalai Lama. I mean, he's not a bad guy, Right? Gandhi. Gandhi was a good guy. He's not a bad guy. The, the Jehovah's Witness lady that works with your mom. The Mormon couple on your bowling team. They're just kind people. Nice people. They're not Satanists. They're neutral. And Jesus says, eh, wrong. There's only two categories. You're either for me or you're against me. You're working to spread the kingdom of God or you're in the way and scattering and you're working for Satan. Those are the only two categories. It doesn't matter how nice the person is. It doesn't, how sweet, it doesn't matter how sweet they are and how kind they are and how pleasant they are to be around and how moral they are. If they do not work for Jesus, that they are a slave of, of Christ the master, that they are the ones doing his bidding in their own life and spreading the gospel, and spread, then they are the enemy. They're working against him. They're Christ's enemy. That's what he says, verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever doesn't gather, scatters. Neutrality is impossible. There's only two destinations. There's heaven and hell. There's not this like middle ground. The bad people go to the place where they burn. And the good people go to heaven. And everyone else, they just like go to a shopping mall in the sky. You know, it's not bad. It's not heaven, but it, it'll, it's air conditioned. No, there's no, there's no middle ground. In John chapter 8, verse 42, Jesus said to a group of religious leaders, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. Then he says this. You are of your father, the devil. He's saying this, by the way, not to insurrectionists like Barabbas, murderers. He's saying this to church folk. It's what we would call them. You know, clean, these are the Pharisees that he's talking to, the, the religious people, the people that try to keep God's law. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. And he was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. 
When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me? Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is because you're not of God. So when someone says, well, I'm a good person, I'm a nice person, I just don't believe in Jesus, if they've heard the truth about Jesus and reject that, the reason is because they're not of God. They're of Satan. Being nice doesn't get you to heaven. Nobody goes to heaven. Nobody's nice enough to go to heaven. You need Jesus to do this for you. And if you reject him, and you reject his offering, you reject his righteousness, and you reject his sin bearing on the cross on your behalf, then you're against him. And there's nothing in between. Neutrality is impossible. You cannot sit on the fence. There is no fence. This brings us to our third point. Moralism is dangerous. So resistance is futile. Satan's way more powerful than you, and so are his demons. You need God to be on your side. Neutrality is impossible. If you're not for him, you're against him. You better get on his side. And moralism is dangerous. And what I mean by this, moralism is that whole idea that this is a good person because they have good morals. You know, they're a good neighbor. They're a good citizen. They're a kind person. They do the right thing, you know. So that's good. Verse 24, Jesus said, When the unclean spirit, the demon, has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. This is an attack that Jesus is launching on the moralistic Judaism of his day. So Judaism is the right religion in the Old Testament. It's, it's Yahwehism. It's, but by the time Jesus was on the scene, a large portion, not all of it, but a large portion of the way Judaism was functioning in Israel was a focus on the morals rather than a focus on the relationship with God. And so you were sinful if you looked sinful and seemed sinful. And if you could hide that sin, that was good. So the Pharisees would hide their sins. That's why Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. They're, they're pretty on the outside. They're clean on the outside. But inside, they're full of dead men's bones. They've still got this sin, but they, they hide it with all the external things that they do. Don't be like the Pharisees who pray on the street corner using lots of words, who blow a trumpet before they put money in the offering, who tell everybody that they fast twice a week, you know, and they, they um, disfigure their faces when they're fasting so that everyone asks them about it, and doing their righteousness externally. He says, don't be like that. This doesn't count. You tithe mint and dill. You know, you go to your little spice rack and put a tenth in the offering plate. Like you, you tithe down to, you're, you're so meticulous about the stuff that everybody sees. But you neglect the mercy that God wants you to have on people and the love that he wants you to have. That's why you make the, the widow give her last uh, two little mites to support your system, but you, you're not going to lift a finger to, to bear the burden that you're tying on all these other people. Jesus had very strong words against these moral people. So this mute man 
he suddenly, his life gets an upgrade, right? Like one moment he's demon-possessed, he's mute, he can't speak, and he, he's condemned, he's a lost person. You know, he's, he's got the worst life you can imagine. And now suddenly, Jesus comes, casts the demon out, he's demon-free, he can speak again, but he's still not saved. So did he really get an upgrade? And you say, well, surely it's better that he's demon-free at least. At least that's better. I mean, you could be an unbeliever, and that's pretty bad, but that's not as bad as being an unbeliever who's possessed by a demon, right? That's the opposite of what Jesus says. Jesus says this guy's worse off. He's worse off now that there's no demon in him because he's going to clean up his act, and he's going to go to temple. He's going to join the Judaistic system. You know, he's going to be a moral person, a churchgoer. And everybody's going to think he's fine. But he's not saved. So he's still, his main problem isn't solved. His main problem is he still works for Satan. Because if you're not for me, you're, still, you're against me. It doesn't matter how clean your life is. That's the whole point here. And, and not only that, not only is this going to get him on judgment day, he's actually still vulnerable to a demon coming back. Because unbelievers are vulnerable to that because they don't have the Holy Spirit guarding them. And not only that, he's vulnerable to having more than one demon come back. Like, what? I mean, that's what Jesus says here. Verse 24, when the unclean spirit's gone out of the person, it passes through waterless places. It's kind of like, you, you sort of picture this demon being like, nuts, I lost my host. And he looks around, where can I go? Oh, a bunch of believers here, there's nowhere. It's like, this is a waterless place. It's like me in the desert, just going around looking for an oasis. And when he looks around long enough, and he can't find anyone else that's been inviting him in, he says, you know what? I'm just going to go back to my house and go check it out. And this time, when he goes back to him, what does he see? He'll return to my house from which he came. Verse 25, when it comes, it, the demon, finds the house swept and in order. Well, now he's swept up his life. He's cleaned things out. Now he's all moral. Now he's a good person. This is fantastic. My buddies will like to live here. So verse 26 then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. So we learn a few things here. One, you can have multiple demons occupying the same person. Possession. Um, we meet a guy called Legion. Remember that? When Jesus says, what's your name? He says, my name is Legion, for we are many. There were many demons in him. Um, sometimes in multiple personality disorder, that may, might be a modern version, like a, a modern manifestation of multiple demons living in a person. You get people living cases where people can, they speak English and then they can, they can flip and speak French and they have a completely different accent and there can be a, a, a male personality in a person and then a female personality and they can flip between them. Some people have m many of these. So we learn that. You can have seven other spirits. And we also learn that demons, there's demons that are more evil than other demons. Because it says it's more, more evil than itself. And they all enter and they dwell there. Now the last state of this person is worse than the first. He's actually worse off than when he just had one demon. You think the worst thing that can happen to you is that you're, you've got a demon in you? No. 
there's something worse. You can have seven demons in you. So how do you make sure you don't have seven, seven demons in you? Well, what you don't do is kick out the one and then clean up your life and wait for some more to come back. You need to be right with Jesus because he's come to subdue the strong man. He's come to put an end to the power that Satan has over people's souls. But if you reject Jesus, you're on your own. And resistance is futile. That thing's way stronger than you. Neutrality is impossible. You might be a, a good person, but if you're not a Christian, you work for Satan. And here we find that moralism is actually dangerous because you are in a worse state when you think that you're fine. You see this all the time. You see Jesus talk about it. Can you think the, the parable of the um, tax collector and the Pharisee? And the Pharisee's there and he's, you know, he's in temple and he's saying, I've, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this tax collector over there. Why? Because I, you know, I do all the right things and I fast twice a week and I, I pray and I tithe and everything. And, the, and what does the tax collector do? Remember that? He doesn't, he doesn't even look at heaven. He's just like, beating his breast, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And then Jesus says this crazy thing. He says, that's the one who goes home justified. Not the guy who's got his act together. Why? Because the guy who's got his act together thinks that he's fine. He thinks he's not like that other person. So you're actually worse off. You're better when you have a demon in you because at least you're desperate and you know you need Jesus. The demon goes away and you're like, I'm fine. My house is swept and kept in order. But you're still vulnerable to Satan. You still work for him. In the spiritual world, the more self-sufficient you feel, the more danger you're in. You know, people who are they, they have an uh, alcohol addiction or drug addiction, and they've got it kind of under control. You know, I wake up and I have my vodka in the shower, but I'm high-functioning at work. Do those people ask for help? Do they check themselves into rehab? No, they're fine. They're coping. I can quit any time. Ever heard that? It's when the person hits rock bottom. Now you can work with them. Now, now, now they can be saved. You're, you're worse off when you feel self-sufficient. That's why the Bible tells us it's hard for rich people to go to heaven. It's, way, it's harder for a rich person to go to heaven than for a poor person to go to heaven. Because poor people, the poorer you are, the more desperate you are for God's help just to get through the day. And the only way to be safe from a ninja is to have a stronger ninja as your bodyguard. But if you feel like you're fine and you can take him, you're in trouble. And that's why it says the last state of that person is worse than the first. Without Jesus in your life, without the Holy Spirit in your heart, without the Father on your side, you are still working for Satan. And that demon can come back anytime with his roommates. Look at how Jesus says the demon thinks of this man's soul. I will return to my house. You see, unless you're owned by Jesus, who bought you with a price, and that's what you mean when you call him master, that you are his slave, you are his property, and unless you're okay with that, 
You might think you're free, but nobody's free. You're either a slave of Jesus or you are a slave of Satan and sin. So cleaning up your life doesn't save you. You can go from drug addict to rehabilitated. You can go from alcoholic to a teetotaler. You can go from a Satanist to a moral citizen. But if you aren't saved, you are Satan's property, and he can do what he wants with you anytime he wants. And I think in the West, the main reason more Westerners are not overtly possessed by demons is because that makes them feel more safe and they don't even believe in a spiritual realm. You see, you go, to, you go to parts of Africa, you go to parts of India, you go to parts of, um, there's parts of Asia, where people are, they're so convinced that there's a spiritual realm because they've seen demonic activity, they've seen people being possessed. But you get to sort of like the, the more sophisticated, you know, um, educated people, the science people that don't even believe in God, don't believe in a spiritual realm, well, the way Satan keeps those people feeling self-sufficient and duped is by not showing them that there's a spiritual realm. The house is swept and put in order. Moral lives are swept houses. Mormons are some of the nicest people you'll meet. Their lives are swept and in order. They don't smoke. They don't drink. They don't even drink coffee. That's better than you. Bunch of addicts. Their houses are swept and put in order. And their clean lives and their sparkling temples and their beautiful universities are just upscale neighborhoods for demonic teaching. That keeps people bound and damned to hell. And this text also shows that there are some demons worse than others, as we've said, because he talks about these being more evil than the others. So the demons we see in Scripture are pretty evil. I don't think we can even imagine how evil they can get. So don't trust your life. Don't trust your morals. Don't trust your getting your act together. You need to trust in your champion. Jesus is the only champion. He's the only one who can subdue the strong man. You need him to come and do this for you. And then when he does, you're safe. Then you can breathe easy because then you know greater is he who is in me than he who's in the world. Jesus saves you. He buys you. He's purchased you with his blood. He owns you, and so he takes personal responsibility for protecting you and keeping your soul safe. And this is the best thing that can ever happen to you, not to just be demon-free, not to be moral, but to be saved. And only Jesus is strong enough to save you from yourself and from sin and from the strong man, Satan. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that we can put all of our trust in you that you can take care of us physically, spiritually, every way that we need. And I do pray, Lord, if there's anyone here tonight who has been putting their trust and their faith in their good works, their moralism, the fact that they are demon-free and have lives that are swept and in order, I pray that you will use your word and your spirit to, to break through to them that they need a savior just as much as a person who is demon-possessed. And all of us need you as our Savior, Lord. And so we commit our lives to you and we, we commit to obey you 
and to tell others of you that you can set them free too. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, well, we got, oh, we got some time for Q&A. We've got a lot of time for Q&A. Katie. Uh, Esau, uh, Jacob and Esau. J Jacob deceived Isaac. Jacob, Esau blessed me. Yeah. Esau wept aloud. And he said, I don't have any more blessing left in me. <laughs> right. But then you jump ahead to where Jacob blesses Manasseh and Ephraim and he puts a sham cross. But Joseph's like, no, don't do that. And Moses wants to kill the animals. He's like, no, I'm going to do it this way. And then he gets a blessing. Yeah, it's a really good question. So just to repeat it, um, Katie's asking about blessings as you see them in the Old Testament uh, when a person blesses another person. Specifically, the examples she's using are when um, fathers bless their sons. They kind of pronounce a blessing over the person, um, and then those blessings are treated very, very seriously in, in the Old Testament. And the example she used is like, so Esau, remember, he's the older twin, and so he's supposed to get the the major inheritance and the the line of blessing that comes from God and because he's the older one, but because of that little transaction he and Jacob had with the stew, he sold his birthright to Jacob. And so Rebecca, um, their mom, helps Jacob pretend to be Esau because Isaac's blind, you know. And so Isaac pronounces blessing on who he thinks is Esau, but it's actually the wrong kid. And when when I read that, I'm like, but that doesn't count. You lied, you know. Still goes to Esau, but he's like, oh, no, well, Jacob got this. And Esau is like weeping and so upset because Jacob has his inheritance, which he sold to him legitimately. But anyway, Jacob was a sneaky dude. That's what the word Jacob means. Sneaky dude in the Hebrew. Heel grabber. And, and he did. He grabbed that in was His mom helped him. But the question is, how come then Isaac doesn't just give Esau a good blessing too? He, Isaac actually says, sorry, buddy, I, g I gave the good blessing to your brother. I, I'm a fresh out of blessings. Um, so that's one example. And then the other one was, uh, was Joseph. Is that we, with, um, oh, yeah, when Jacob blesses Manasseh and Ephraim, and he crosses his hands over the two. Um, so, because it was the older and the younger, he was supposed to bring the older first, but he does it the other way around. So, in both of those cases, so this is what, let me just start by saying this is one of the things I don't really know, but I'm going to take a stab at it. Um, it seems to me, well, firstly, one of the things we do know is that the, the promise um, of blessing usually goes through the firstborn, but in the case of Jacob and Esau, there was a prophecy that came that saying the younger will serve, the, the older will serve the younger. Remember in Romans 9, he talks about that. And what God was doing there is he's specifically showing that I didn't set this plan in motion and just let it go. My plan of election will stand, that's what Paul says, so that God's plan of election, my purpose of election might stand. God wanted to show I'm choosing who the blessing is going to each time. So before they were good or bad, before they'd done anything good or bad and they were in the womb, Paul says in Romans 9 through 11, um, God already announced before they were even born, the younger one's going to get the blessing. The older one's going to be inferior. 
Well, they don't even know who's who yet. So the one comes out, you know, and they tie a little string to know who's who, and uh, Esau becomes the older, and everyone sort of forgets about that. But as it turned out in God's providence, Jacob ended up getting the blessing. That's why the whole nation is, where you go to the country today, you go to, who's the war between Hamas and Israel? Who's Israel? Jacob. Yeah, God renamed him Israel. So Jacob is, was the chosen one, even though he was the second one. That's why the blessing had to go to him. Um, and then the same thing happens with Manasseh and Ephraim. You get, you get a, a, a switch of the older and the younger again. So there's this the sense in the blessing isn't going to naturally flow to whoever society has set up. The blessing is going to flow to whoever God chooses. Now, why he can't just give another good blessing? I don't know that. I'm like, come on, Isaac, just come up with another good one. You know, it's like, almost like I wrote such a good birthday card to my one son. I got nothing left in it for my other son. He's just going to get, he's just going to get, you know, a Hallmark card with nothing written in it. It's like, no, come up with a nice little message for him too. But he doesn't do that. So good question. Maybe one day I'll know a better answer. Good. Any other questions? Yes, Judy, you had one about prophecy. Do you want me to just ask it because you asked it to me earlier? Yeah. So um, Judy wants me to do her ladies' Bible study homework for her um, <laughs> because they are uh, in First Corinthians. In First Corinthians 13 and 14, there's a talk about prophecy. And so Judy's question was, what does that word prophecy mean? Because um, Paul specifically says that it's, it's good and we should want that. Let me, let me just find it here. If I'm going to do your homework, I might as well do a full job, right? All the ladies' homework, right? Um, so a couple of things. One is First uh, Corinthians 13. Um, Where's the one in First Corinthians? Oh, yeah. Um, so the word prophecy is mentioned all over these chapters. So, for example, uh, verse 8 says, uh, Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. Um, for we only know in part, and we prophesy only in part. When the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. So he talks about it there in chapter 14. Verse 1, he says, Pursue love and strive for the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For those who speak in a tongue do not speak to other people, but to God, for nobody understands them, since they're speaking mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, those who prophesy speak to other people for their upbuilding and edification and encouragement and consolation or comfort. Um, those who speak in a tongue build up themselves, but those who prophesy build up the church. I wish you could all speak in tongues like me. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues Unless, of course, somebody interprets so that the church may be built up. So the point there is a couple of things. One is that the word prophecy has a wider domantic, uh, semantic range than you might at first think. In other words, when I say I'm prophesying, you automatically think I'm saying I'm speaking about the future. Like, that's what prophets do. Prophets tell the future. They prophesy. And it is true that that word contains that function, but that word also just means simply to speak forth, to speak out. To, it can be used, in fact, just as preaching. So um, I remember when I was in seminary, I had to choose a Puritan to do a book report on, and there was a book by William Perkins, the Puritan who wrote The Art of Prophesying. 
And I was like, oh, cool. I wonder what the Puritans thought about prophesying. So I chose that book. And I started reading it. And as soon as I started reading it, I was like, oh, this whole book is about how to preach better. <laughs> it's all about preaching, how to outline your sermons and how to drive home the point and how to use theology. I mean, it was a good book. I mean, I learned a lot from it, but I want to learn about prophecy. Well, the point there is that preaching is prophecy. And what I'm doing when I open the book of Luke and tell you what God says is I'm prophesying. But I wouldn't say it that way because it would be confusing, right? I don't want to put profit on my business card. <laughs> I'm, I'm a non-profit um, pastor, you know. But, you, but actually the word prophecy can mean that as well. So what Paul's talking about here, honestly, it can be ambiguous. If you go to that passage looking for prophecy as a future force telling, um, that's how you're going to interpret it. But think about what he says. His point is this, that there are spiritual gifts. And if you want this, these people wanted the gift of tongues, the gift of speaking in a foreign language. He says the problem with that is, okay, great, now you can speak, you know, koza. Good for you. Nobody understands koza. You, nobody's going to grow. Nobody's going to understand anything. Rather, if you want a spiritual gift, you should want the, the gift of prophecy, of, of speaking forth the word of God, of being able to build people up and to comfort them and to encourage them. That's a, that's a great gift to want because it's actually going to benefit the church. You want to just speak a foreign language? It's of no use. Unless, of course, there's someone interpreting, he says. If someone else can speak the language, then they can interpret it. Then other people can be built. Otherwise, you're just what? You're praying and cause it to God, and God can understand you, and it's all about you, and you just want to just pray in your own language. God can understand you in your own language. Just pray in your own language. So why do you want that language so badly? You know? So that's his, that's his point. It's a rebuke of the desire for tongues. And he says, you should rather want prophecy. So, did I help? I hope you get an A. Let me know. Yes, Brian. <laughs> I'll do your homework. What is it? <laughs> oh, my goodness. First Timothy 2.15. She'll be saved through bearing children. Give me the easy ones tonight. Um, okay, so the point there is, starts in verse 12. It says, so this is 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. I permit no woman. Well, let's start in verse 11. Um, ah, let's start in verse 10. Uh, but sh So she's to have good works, as is proper for women who profess the reverence of God. Let a woman learn. This is in a church environment. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She's to keep silent. Why? For Adam was formed first and then Eve. So this is a creation structure issue. Adam wasn't deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in the faith and love and holiness with modesty. Okay, so it's a, it's a difficult passage to interpret. Um, you always start with what it doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean is that women will be saved by having children, and if they don't have children, they don't get saved. Okay, it doesn't mean that. This is not a verse against birth control either, by the way. Um, there's a funny story of MacArthur teaching this thing in Russia. There was a question in Russia, and when he said that, you don't have to keep having children to stay saved. All the wives looked at their husbands like, you had to get that verse wrong of all the verses? Because they all had like, you know, 12 kids or whatever. Um, so 
there's a couple of different views on this, and when I preach through it, I'll go through it in more detail. But just basically, it could mean that Eve was um, became part of the salvation of the human race came because she produced the seed that became the Messiah. And so, yes, she messed things up by taking the fruit and giving it to Adam, but she's also the vessel by which the salvation came because God says to her, it's through your seed that the serpent's going to be crushed. Um, so, so that's a pretty good view. The other view is just that um, her role in the church is not to be, so a woman's role in the church is not to be one of holding authority over men and in that way, you know, changing the world by teaching men, but rather she teaches her own children. So she has children and she, her influence on society is going to be through her children, providing that they grow up as believers. If, if she's not raising them as believers, then she's not even doing that. So in that sense, she's being saved, not personally, but her, her um, you know, Eve's reputation, the, the woman of the reputation is the one that got deceived and messed things up, is being reversed or being saved or being made whole or being healed, that word can mean all of those things, um, by her influence in society through raising her kids to be believers. So those are kind of the two main views. And I'll pick a view when I preach through that book. So you'll probably get like a B for that because you don't have a view, but good. Yes, Nadia. Oh, good question. Yeah, yeah, great question. So, so Nadia's question is, um, why does Jesus frequently call himself the son of man when he's the son of God? You would think that that's what he wants to emphasize. But then she read in Daniel, what's it, 7.13, um, the reference to the coming of the son of man. Um, so a couple of things. One is that Jesus, when you count all the times he refers to himself, he refers to himself as the son of man more than anything else. That was, you could say, his favorite title. It is a title because it comes from the Old Testament. Ezekiel was called the son of man too, by the way. So, and God called prophets the son of man when he's emphasizing their humility, their human. I'm God. You're just a, you're just a, you, your nature is human nature. So I'm going to reveal things to you. So son of man, do the son of man, do that. And Jesus liked to emphasize that because think about it. For the first time for all of eternity, he has this humility of being incarnate as a human being. Now he'll have that forever. But in his life on earth, this was a new um, experience. Uh, experience isn't the right word. You've got to be careful with these things. This was a new, it was new, um, that he was that he had the nature, that he had a human nature. Because remember, in his incarnation, he added a second nature. He had the divine nature, he still does. He added a, a second nature for the first time. And so he, he emphasized that. And he came in humility. His first coming was a coming of humility. So he referred to himself constantly as the son of man, the same way God calls the prophets the son of man to emphasize their humility. Does that make sense? And it was a prophetic title. People understood that, Daniel referred to the coming of the Son of Man, and then Jesus says, yeah, that's me. He also calls himself the Son of David um, because he was genetically from David's line, which was part of the prophecy, and he calls himself the Son of God because he is of the nature of God as well. Great question. One more. Yes, Sarah. 
and, and then Logan. <laughs> okay. Yeah, how old is your kid? Ten. Yeah, that's a great question for a 10-year-old. Um, <laughs> okay, so the question, just to restate it, is uh, at the, when, because God is too holy to look on our sin, that's what causes the separation between us and God. But when, Sat uh, uh, when Jesus, yeah, when Satan was being dominated on the cross because Jesus was on the cross um, bearing the sin of the world, then did did that, was that a victory for Satan in the sense that now God, uh, the Father, would be distant from the Son because the Son had our sin? And then there's that manifestation of Jesus actually saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is a quote from something that David said in the Psalms. So, uh, so no, there was not an actual separation between the Father and the Son because um, there's never a separation in the Trinity in that sense. Um, but I think that Jesus experienced the disfavor and wrath of God in that moment the way he had never, ever experienced in all eternity because he had never had sin. And in that moment, he didn't have sin, but he, he carried his sin, our sin, in his body on the cross, the Bible tells us. And so, yes, I think there was an experience of... Um, feeling distant from the Father for the first time. It's also the only time Jesus ever calls him my God instead of my Father. Um, yeah, does that answer the question? So the answer is no, there wasn't an actual separation, but I think there was a, the experience of a separation. That's the way I would say it, simply. And then Logan, and then we're done. Good, thank you. Should impregatory be what? Yeah, oh, that's a good question. So in imprecatory prayer, um, imprecatory means that you're asking God to basically to do something bad to someone else. I mean, let's just face it. Or it's bring justice to someone else, punish someone for something that they've done. You see examples of this in the Old Testament, in the Psalms. Um, and, and David prayed those things when people were out to when people were opposing God's people opposing God's kingdom through their people sometimes their people would pray that instead of them um, bringing justice and fighting those people off they prayed that God would do it so I think it's very it's a very difficult thing to do in a godly way where your motives need to be I want what's best for God's glory and this person opposing me is disrupting God's glory and God's kingdom and God's people. And so I want God to take that person out or to teach them a lesson or make them stop doing it for the sake of his glory and his people and kind of remove myself from it. Um, if somebody's out to get me, I'm, I'm not going to hurt them. But God, I want you to make this stop and I want you to give this person what they deserve so that I don't have to do it. And so your question is, what is that role in in the life of a New Testament is something we should regularly pray. I don't think we should regularly pray that, and I think that, but I think it's possible. And I base that on the fact that if you look at the 
the examples of prayers in the New Testament, they don't show up a lot, but they do show up. Paul calls out to God to bring justice to certain situations. I can't think of the top of my head now, but it's like, is it Hymenaeus and Philetus? Um, yeah, and um, Alexander the coppersmith. Um, and, you know, the, he, he says things like, you know, the Lord will repay, or may the Lord repay this person. It's not really a prayer, it's more like a, a wish, but I think it's fine for us as Christians, if our motives are pure, to want God to bring justice and protect his glory in a situation. If there's someone attacking the church, slandering the church, launching a campaign against the church, I mean, I'm not going to go and hire a hitman, take the person out. That would be against what God wants. But I would go to God and say, God, can you make this stop? Can you, can you take this person out if you need to? I would pray that. But if someone cuts me off in traffic and I'm praying that, that's probably going a little too far. <laughs> 